Amen. Be seated, please. Take your copy of the Bible, God's Word, and turn to Isaiah chapter 39. Um, Bulletin says 39 and 40. It's only going to be 39 uh, this morning. I made the judgment call about Thursday, and bulletins, I think, were already printed by that point. All right, Isaiah chapter 39, I would remind you, because our God is outside of time and space, when he wrote this, uh, you were in his mind when he authored it. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of uh, Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, And he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, and all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah, the prophet, came to King Hezekiah and said to him, what did these men say? And from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, they have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, what have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that's in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, there will be peace and security in my days. Let's pray. Father, you've spoken to us in the reading of your word. Would you please speak in its preaching? Again, account for our frailty, certainly the frailty of um, the preacher. And would your spirit be pleased to work, we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. One of the challenges in being a preacher, now there are many, but one of the challenges in being a preacher is trying to help kind of inspire God's people to think bigger than our specific moment in time. You see, I think probably today, most of us would come into the sanctuary today and we would be comfortable saying that, hey, I'm a needy person. That may have been an un, kind of 
an unusual statement when I was a child, but now in our moment in time and history and kind of our great love affair with therapy and things like that, it's probably not an uncommon thing for everybody to walk in and say, I'm needy. I need something that's partially why I'm here. I I need encouragement or I I need strength or I'm having a hard time with my health or I'm having a hard time with my family or I'm having a hard time with my coworkers. I'm having a hard time with something. And I need something from God in order to help me process that event. And I think that's a very good thing. Uh, I love the idea that God's people recognize our needs in some fashion and go to the Lord for us to, uh, to have those needs met. That's, I think that's wonderful. Don't, don't hear that as, as being a criticism in any way. Uh, the, the, the thing that's so challenging, I, I think, perhaps in connection to that, is that that is wonderfully small-minded. It's wonderfully small-minded because the entirety of that, uh, the entirety kind of of that moment in time sort of thinking is really defines everything by my own limitations, by my own needs, by my own wants. And it kind of takes us out of the larger narrative of of history, of of redemption. It takes us out of the kind of biblical timeline. It, it, It takes us out of the larger context of the Bible, and it takes our kind of light and momentary afflictions and and kind of blows them up and makes them kind of the definitive thing for the church. As a result, again, y'all know that my hobby is preaching. It's my kind of field of study. Really, in the last 20 years in this great nation of ours, the, the trend in preaching has been to define everything kind of through the filter or lens of your specific needs your specific problems, your, your limitations become kind of the, the whole kit and caboodle of what gets addressed. And I think that's a, probably a, a great loss. One of the reasons, again, as I mentioned, is that it takes us out of the timeline of history. And in fact, actually, it largely structures your Christian life around your own individual struggles and limitations as opposed to the larger context of the corporate struggles of the people of God. I'll give you an example. Uh, Historically, the church has defined her relationship kind of really in, in two categories, there are really two categories. There, There are positive relationships with the Lord and his people And there are warfare relationships with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that's it. Everything falls into those categories. That's it. That's the sum totality of relationships with everything else around is either positive with God and with his people or warfare with world, the flesh, and the devil. And one of perhaps the limitations of this kind of therapeutic model of looking at the world is that suddenly we've introduced a third category, my problems, which have become kind of the operative and bigger and greatest and largest of all things. Not to say your problems aren't important, they are. But perhaps maybe not the thing that all of life needs to be viewed through. In fact, actually, I think that's really kind of part of what we get to see in this chapter here is we get to see a man who has let his own thinking, his own problems, his own struggles, his own moment in time come to define everything. 
uh, using a, a silly illustration, it's the glasses that he's viewing the world through now are his own problems. Not the problems of the people of God, not what God is doing in redemptive history, not who God is and how he loves his people and cares for them. The lenses that he's looking through are his problems, and his problems dominate everything. In fact, actually, his uh, kind of narrow-minded and small-minded approach to his problem uh, problems produces really a catastrophe for himself and for the people of God. And in doing so, what we're gonna try to look at here, hopefully, is four kind of dangers for the people of God that show up when we have that kind of narrow-minded, my problems dominate the world approach. And then what God's doing with those four problems, those four dangers. So four dangers that we're exposed to, and then to get to what's God doing with that. Now, to look at the first one, though, you have to kind of back up just a little bit, all right? Chapter 38, this is 38 and 39 are very closely linked, and we have Hezekiah. Hezekiah, we, uh, we love in the scriptures because he's probably one of the most human of the kings that we get to see. We get to see that he has these kind of moments of brilliance and uh, wonder and grace, and he has these kind of moments of extreme humanity and limitation and failure and everything kind of in between. He's a, a king of Israel that... Uh, uh, looks like uh, what we would kind of hope in some ways they would look like. He, he looks like us. Victories and failures kind of wrapped up in a person in one man entirely. Now, uh, 38 is largely where we got to see a, a spectacular kind of wonderful intervention of God done. The king got sick and got sick to the point that uh, it had kind of leaked out to the neighboring communities and people had found out, the neighboring kingdoms had found out that the king was ill. In fact, he was so ill that it looked like he was dying until Isaiah shows up. And you remember the passage, Isaiah looks at him directly and says, it doesn't look like you're dying, you are dying. Your time is up, your ticket has been punched, you had a good run, it's over, it's time to go. You're going to shuffle off this mortal coil. You have finished the race set before you. The king does not take that well. And in fact, actually it includes him actively turning away from the prophet and beginning to weep and grieve. Mourn and then plead with the Lord. At which point God hears and extends his life for 15 years gives him uh, a new kind of redeemed decade and a half, taking the sickness away, restoring him to health, miraculously returning him to leadership of the people of God. And you have at the end of chapter 38 that kind of marvelous contemplation on God's mercy. It's wonderful. It's a beautiful thing as the king kind of pours out his heart of, I was dying, I I was at the lowest of lows, and God saved me, and everything is new, and I will praise the Lord. Well, chapter 39 follows kind of briefly on the heels of 38. He's, He's been restored from this illness. He's been kind of redeemed and returned to health. And that news has leaked to the kingdoms around. Again, as best guess, we think this is 702 BC. And we know what's happening in world politics at this time. Assyria is kind of the dominant power. 
but their power is waning. In fact, Sennacherib's kind of had to try to consolidate power and has been working down the uh, Mediterranean seaboard, you know, the coast, and working his way down. And they've had problems with Egypt and another place. But while they've been away, back in uh, the far uh, east, Babylon has been preparing. And while the cat is away, the mice will play. While the king of Assyria has been gone, Babylon has been building power, building strength. In fact, actually, we know Baladan passes away. His son, Merodach Baladan, comes into power, and Merodach Baladan is, is preparing for Babylon to get out from under Assyrian control. He's trying to increase his influence, increase his army, increase his national resources, his national power to get out from Assyrian governance and influence. And here he hears, ooh, Hezekiah, the man who looked dead. In fact, the man who was dead almost His God is powerful enough to save him. His God is more powerful than the gods of the Assyrians. Perhaps this king would be a good king to have an alliance with. Perhaps this nation would be a good nation to join with in an effort to defeat the Assyrians. This is who we should be allies with. Now, if you're paying attention from the larger book of Isaiah, that's a problem. In fact, that's been the problem all the way through for the kings of the Jews is that they've been making alliances with the wrong people. Rather than nurturing and obeying the alliance they have with their God, they've been looking for alliances with foreign powers in an effort to shore up their military strength. And now in chapter 39, one is basically handed to them. Here's a military powerhouse. Here's a nation looking to resist the Assyrian control who comes and more or less hands them the idea of an alliance. And Hezekiah's response, not great. Not great at all. In fact, actually, like as I mentioned, shows four different kind of dangers for Christians Uh, in light of their interaction with the world. All right, starts, let's look at the text. Chapter 39, verse one. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah. Now that present there is not just like, hey, look, we got you a fruit basket. We're glad you're feeling better. This is not, he, they sent him a get well card or a uh, we're glad you're feeling better sort of present. This is the present, the kind of present that would in some sense bond nations together. Not quite a bribe, more think of almost like tribute. This is the kind of present that you would give in an effort to persuade a nation to join you in power and in battle. So he sends these letters, those are the get well cards, I guess, and the present, the tribute to Hezekiah, specifically because he'd heard that he'd been sick and had recovered, and this is a perfect moment in time to change the course of history. And verse two is where you would expect, hopefully, a good response from the king. 
You would, you would hope that Hezekiah, who's just coming off of a fresh victory with God, you would hope that he would have the right kind of response that a, a man or woman in his place would have, being presented a, a union with the world. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. Already you get to see he's actually kind of putting the first danger on display, the danger of fellowship, of friendship with the world. Realistically, what should he have done? Should he have received the envoys? Absolutely, he should have received them. Should he have brought them into his home and into his palace? Yeah, absolutely he should have. That's what you would do with foreign dignitaries. The issue here, though, is in chapter two, uh, chapter 39, verse 2. It's not just that he receives them, but you get that, again, he welcomes them with, with gladness, with joy and delight. It's, it's, it's not just a perfunctory sort of greeting. He's cultivating friendship and fellowship and union and connection. You see, actually, that's what the king of Babylon is trying to establish here. That's why he sends his envoys in the first place. He sends them loaded with tribute, with presents. He sends them loaded with letters of persuasion in an effort to build a union between the Babylonians and the Jews, between those that know not the Lord and those that do know the Lord, between the pagans, the Gentiles, the enemies of God and his children, those that are called according to his name. That's really Hezekiah's first mistake in the text is that he brings them in and doesn't just bring them in again in a perfunctory or kind of civil sort of fashion, but brings them in with fellowship, with union, with friendship. And the sad reality is that danger is no less real for us today. Now, granted, thank the Lord, the church is not actively at war with the nation of Babylon right now. The nation of Babylon doesn't exist. Church is now not a physical nation. It's a spiritual institution. But the war has really kind of, in some sense, gone from an overt war to a covert war. It's now no longer a war that was fought between nation states with spears and with shields and with swords and chariots and things like that. It's now a very real combat. It's fought by prayer, the word of God, and temptation and destruction. And I mentioned, this is really how it started, one of the great challenges of being a preacher is trying to inspire and convince people to think bigger than our own kind of immediate little problems. And the problem is, when really we're thinking about our own little immediate problems, it, it forces us to forget about the warfare that's kind of raging all around us. That with the fact that we currently live every day of our lives within this kind of massive, massive cosmic, you know, gigantic battle 
raging on all sides of us, casualties going down all around us, weak and wounded everywhere. And we just get kind of preoccupied with our own little bit of kind of struggle in front of us. I'm sure you've probably seen some movie in the past that has kind of that shot in it. You know the shot. It's famous in lots of different movies. I won't name any of the ones. But where the soldier kind of either gets shell-shocked or rocked or injured or some sort of problem, and they, they kind of go wandering through the battlefield while the entire battle rages around them, and it's like slow motion where you know, bullets are whizzing by and explosions happen, and they just kind of wander through the entire field having no idea that it's happening around them. Too many of us live our lives that way today. The danger of fellowship with the world. I mean, I'll put it this way. Many of us have actually not spent the time and energy to think through what an actual friend looks like that's different when they are a Christian versus when they're not. Like, we don't actually think about that. Many of us, we treat all of our friends the same because it's not good for us to show favoritism and things like that, but then we treat Christians identically to non-Christians. We give them access to the same amounts of our heart, to the same parts of our personality, to the same bits and pieces of our lives. We're actively cultivating friendships with the world. Now, am I, am I arguing that we be jerks to everybody? No. Am I, am I arguing that we as a church need to become rude to everybody that's not a member here? No. Am I arguing that you need to have a different type of friendship with people who know the Lord than with people who don't? Yeah. Because at its very core, again, what we're doing is we're, we're giving the world access to who we are and how we are and how we think and how we feel and how we process. Cultivating friendship with the world. Now, it's not just with friends. I mean, again, think about your hobbies. Think about your habits. Think about the things that have access to your heart. Do you give Christian and non-Christian things the same access to your soul? Probably. I mean, most of us, again, we're, we're too preoccupied with our own little moment in time, our own individual problems, that we've forgotten it. Yeah, by the way, the entire world is out to get us by order of the devil, actively arranged and strategically used for our destruction. How often do we play directly into his hands by helping him? So he doesn't even have to have spies. We just invite him in and put him in places of power in our hearts. All right, so Hezekiah's mistake. He invites them in, receives them gladly, kind of cultivates friendship with them. He creates fellowship with the world. This is danger number one. Danger number two 
is that he then tries to impress the world. Not just builds a friendship with them, but he tries to impress them. Verse 2, Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. All right, okay. That was a mistake. But then on top of that, showed them his treasure house. This is a stupid idea. What a dumb idea. Hey, let me give you reasons to invade me later. Hey, once you solidify your power, let me give you an exact amount of how much my taxes should be. I'm going to tell you exactly all of the reasons why it benefits you to invade me and destroy me. What a terrible idea. Invites them into his treasure house, shows them the silver, the gold, the spices, the, pre- the, spices, the precious oil. And I love it's just kind of hidden in the list there. His whole armory. Oh, excellent choice. Not only have you shown them uh, all of the reasons why they should invade, but you've also given them access to all the military information they would need to know when they invade. Let's give them all the, the, the knowledge of the money that we have and the knowledge of all the soldiers that we have. What kind of military technology we have, how many of these sorts of things Right, the, uh, the whole armory, and all that was found in his storehouses. So he knows the, the full extent of their resources. This is a king that just a matter of weeks or months ago was afraid of his, his capital city being put in a siege because he was gonna run out of food, and here he is boasting to his next enemy how much food he has, how well he would be able to stand up to a siege. This is foolishness at its height. You think about it, what you have is the king of God's people inviting a pagan king into his midst and showing off everything that he has in an effort to impress that king. That's all he's doing. he's He's trying to boast, he's trying to showcase their greatness. And we can, I think, make an educated guess what he's doing. I suspect really what he's doing here is he's kind of hedging his bets. The Lord has already said that he would save Hezekiah and save the city. He gave him the sign of the sundial moving backwards. So he's seen a a miraculous sign that God is going to save the city but I suspect deep down what he's doing is he's hedging his bets. You know what? This God has promised that he's gonna take care of me, but if he doesn't this time, I got plan B. God's gonna take care of me, but if not, maybe. I got a backup option. This king right here, Merodach Baladan, I can rely on him maybe if I can't rely on God. And it's interesting that his technique in order to accomplish that is to impress the world, to impress the pagan king. I love it. Even when Isaiah comes and asks him about it, verse four, what have they seen in your house? What did you show them, man? Hezekiah answers, and I just love the simplicity of his answer. Everything! 
They've seen all that's in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses I didn't show them. I showed them everything, absolutely everything. Now, it's interesting. This is really, I think, the consequence of the first mistake. That when we make friendship with the world, what we then do as part of that friendship is we give them access to the rules of the game of what we think is important and what we think is valuable and what matters. Now, I think most of the time we don't even realize that we do it. It's not like it's an intentional or strategic decision. It's just that as we make that friendship with that worldly thing, their values begin to kind of leach in and become our values. I think this is probably most easily seen, or maybe not most easily, but very easily seen oftentimes with uh, middle school or high school kids. If you're older in the room, you can remember back to when you were in middle school or high school. If you're in middle school or high school, I'm probably going to describe your life in a little bit. If you're middle school or younger, okay, you'll, you'll see it coming. But most of us at some point in our lives in those years found a friend that looking back on it, we can comfortably say was a bad friend. Right? They, weren't a, they weren't a good person. They didn't love the Lord. Maybe they were uh, perhaps even just overtly a non-Christian. Hated God. And we, we formed what we thought at the time was kind of a sweet friendship with them. Now, some of us, we would go so far as, you know, to kind of wrap it in Christianese language to say, well, I was evangelizing them. That's all I was doing. No, you weren't. But in, in forming that sweet friendship you thought it was with this uh, person who knows not the Lord, uh, um, you gave them access to who you are, to your heart, to your likes and your dislikes. You gave them intimacy, you gave them access, and then as you get older, you kind of reflect back on it and you began to see the ways that that person began to change you. Some of us, actually, we have those seasons in life with those friendships where we look back and go, man, I, I can't believe I did the things I did. I can't believe I became the person that I became. I, I can't believe I did what I did that I gave myself over to activities like that, to behavior like that. Why? Well, because I was just trying to impress them. (laughs) I wanted them to think good of me, to think well of me. I wanted them to like me, to think I'm special. I wanted them to be my friend. Now, I love that in those middle school and high school years, life is still unsophisticated enough that we can actually say those things, right? I wanted this person to be my friend, so I did those sorts of behaviors in an effort to impress them. Uh, Having been a youth pastor before I became a, a pastor here, I realized that teenagers and adults are really just no different, except for a couple things. Teenagers move faster and are less sophisticated, but that's really it. The problems are the same. Now, here it's maybe not quite identical for those of us that are perhaps a bit older in the room, but we do have those things where uh, we've had that boss where we try to impress, or that career that we let absorb our lives and change our values and our ethics. 
We let the world shape who we are. We let the world shape what we think is important. We let the world shape what we think is most significant and valuable. We let the world dictate the terms to us. Again, it's no different really than our middle schoolers. We just hide it a little bit better than they do. The next mistake that Hezekiah makes, we get to see kind of as a progression. Builds a friendship with the world. He then tries to impress them, all the while being impressed by them. That's really what's taking place simultaneously. Verse three, Isaiah the prophet comes to King Hezekiah and says to him, what do they say to you? Right, you, you just had this problem a couple of chapters ago. You just had this problem with the Rabshakeh from Assyria. And you had to tell him off and deal with that. Now you've got emissaries from a different foreign power and your buddies with them. What did you say? What did you do? Where do they come uh, from to you? Hezekiah, actually, his answer is very telling. They've come to me from a far country. They're impressive. They're powerful. They think I'm important. They think my recovery is so important. They traveled a long way to get here. They even came. Are you ready for this? From Babylon. I mean, you can imagine him saying it to the prophet, can't you? Look, these guys are different. They're special. These aren't the local bozos that are trying to take over our country. These guys are from Babylon. They're different. And in doing so, he's kind of really showcased his heart. Has, it's been persuaded, hasn't it? That friendship that he's let kind of come in, it's changed his values. It's, it's changed what he thinks is important and what's not important. So now he's busy trying to impress them and being impressed by them. being captivated and consumed. Uh, would humbly suggest, I think this is one of the great dangers for the American church as the time in which we live. I mean, I think it's probably true for all eras of the church. But this time particularly is that we have this tremendous temptation to become friends with that which God does not call friend. In fact, that which God calls enemy. And then to let that enemy that we've made our friend begin to shape how we think and how we feel and how we act and to let it alter our values, to alter our opinions. I think this is particularly a a danger in the time in which we live because I think, maybe not for the first time in human history, but in a new way in human history, the marketing companies have figured out how to hide their marketing tactics. You think, well, well, that doesn't seem that important. No, no, I mean, like, actively. Like, what we have now in our current moment in time, our our moment in history is that some of the largest companies in the world that have the largest amounts of money invested in certain activities hide the ways that they are persuading you to be just like them. 
One of my favorite illustrations of this, this is maybe five years ago now, Cristiano Ronaldo. Some of you know the name, some of you don't care about the name. It doesn't bother me either way. Ronaldo at the time was one of the two most famous athletes on the planet. He was also one of the two most highly paid athletes on the planet. He's a soccer player. Both of the top two are soccer players. Ronaldo at the time played for one of the great uh, teams, uh, clubs in world soccer, and was paid an obscene amount of money. I think at the time he was making roughly in the neighborhood of $400,000 a week. They pay them by the week, which is a weird thing to think about, that if you somehow managed to squander $400,000 in a seven-day period, all you had to do was wait till the next week and you had $400,000 more in which to spend. That's wild, I think. The thing that was crazy to me is that his $400,000 a week, oh yeah, by the way, after taxes, his $400,000 a week after taxes was less than what he made from Instagram. Hmm, now that's shocking, isn't it? At the time, he had the largest Instagram account in the world, and his Instagram account and the products that he very quietly hid in his videos made him more money than soccer did. $400,000 a week after taxes. That means at the time, Instagram was paying him more than a million dollars a week, or, or his, mark, you know, his various products that he was advertising, paying him more than a million dollars a week. So here you're thinking about a, a Instagram account that is generating more than $50 million a year in income is being presented like it's just a guy's life. It's not run by a marketing firm. Yes, it is. It's just Cristiano Ronaldo's life. No, it's not. He's just taking pictures of the things that he does. No, he's not. None of those are real. You see, that's actually, I think, one great illustration of the world in which we live where the marketing departments have been so thoroughly successful that what we think is normal life isn't actually at all. Isn't actually at all. It's in fact one of the things that why, if you've heard me talk about this with great regularity, Instagram basically causes brain damage in teenage girls. Sorry, it does. It's one of the most devastating things in the world today. I hate it. Absolutely hate it. Not just that one, but all the others as well. And again, I'm not sure why it's so much more damning and devastating to young ladies than it is to boys. I don't know that part yet. The sociologists haven't figured it out. But social media, for whatever reason, is destroying our young ladies. And you older ones in the room too. Sorry. But part of it, I I genuinely think, I think part of it as to why it's so successful is because it's walking us through this exact same progression, but it's doing it so cleverly that we don't see it. To cultivate friends, granted they're pseudo friends, virtual friends, okay, they're people I follow. But to create friends who we then give access to our values, to our ethics, to our hearts, and to our desires. And the real reason behind all of that is actually you get to see at the end of the passage. Isaiah goes to Hezekiah, verses five and following, and basically says, look, (laughs) you love Babylon so much. And you've showed Babylon all of your treasures. That's probably a good idea because it's all going to Babylon anyways. 
I've been telling you this now for weeks and months and years. Yeah, you want to be friends with Babylon, you better buddy up, buddy up with them because you're going to be moving there shortly. You're going to be invaded. Jerusalem's going to be wiped off the map and all of those treasures are going to be headed to Babylon. They're going to take them all away. In fact, they're even going to take some of your sons and make them eunuchs and they're going to serve the king there. And and the thing is, We just, in the prior chapter, got to watch Hezekiah give a moderately great response when he was about to die. And so at this point, if you're reading kind of the first time, you're thinking, ooh, I'm optimistic, right? This this just happened where the Lord gave Hezekiah bad news and Hezekiah turned away from the prophet and cried in his bed up against the wall. Maybe he's gonna give a good response. And verse eight is dreadful. Hezekiah's like, eh, that sounds good to me. Why? Not gonna happen on my watch. I don't have to deal with it. And here you begin to see actually really the problem with Hezekiah. Hezekiah's actually too preoccupied with his own problems. Right? When the king tells him that he, I mean, when the prophet tells him he's gonna die, he melts down. But when the prophet tells him that his sons are going to be made eunuchs, that his nation is going to be invaded, that the actual blessings of God will be taken away to a foreign land. He's like, well, at least it's not while I'm in charge. Somebody else's problem, different problem, different day, just not mine. Or the internet meme, that's a problem for future me, not me. You see, what he has is actually just selfishness. His problems have begun to dominate the entirety of his world. He's not thinking about the larger relationship with the world. He's not thinking about the larger relationship with the people. He's not thinking about anything but himself. And you think, wow, that's probably not great. And you would be right. It's not great. (laughs) The helpful thing, though, is that there is a explanation added. If you were to turn over to 2 Chronicles chapter 32, which I'd encourage you to do if you can find it, one of those books that I know you probably spend all of your time reading. The wall is helpful. You can see where it is, a little bit higher up the wall, a little bit earlier. This exact moment is recorded. Verse, starting with chapter 32, starting verse 27. Hezekiah had great riches and honor and made for himself treasures for silver, for gold, for all precious stones, for spices, for shields, all kinds of costly vessels, storehouses, also for the yield of grain, wine, oil, stalls for all kinds of cattle and sheepfolds. He likewise provided cities for himself, flocks, herds, and abundance, for God had given him very great possessions. This same Hezekiah closed the upper... Uh, Uh, outlet of the waters of Gihon, directed them down the west side of the city of David, and Hezekiah prospered in all his works. Yay! Very wealthy, big storehouses. And so, in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon, whoop, here we are, in this matter, what happened? The matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, that was the, um, the solar clock going backwards, God left him to himself in order to test him and know all that was in his heart. Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his good deeds, behold, they're written. The vision of Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. 
Hezekiah slept with his fathers and they buried him in the upper part of the tombs of the sons of David and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem did him He's a good king. I mean, by and large, he's a good king. He did good things. But interestingly, in this very specific situation, the Lord left Hezekiah to himself in order to show him what was in his heart. And interestingly, Hezekiah doesn't see it, but we do. What had infiltrated Hezekiah's heart? Well, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And what in fact actually uh, should have happened, we would hope, is that this entire situation would have prompted repentance from the king. Prompted what Brandon talked about in Sunday school, a deep and rich confession of sin, of repentance and endeavoring to serve the Lord in a new way. It it should have prompted the king to go to the Lord and say, you are the God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I have not listened, nor have I trusted. Please forgive, redeem, and change. My friends, I will say this. A room this size, upper middle class suburbanites, It's almost certain that a significant, if not an extreme percentage of us, have given the world access to our hearts. It's almost certain that the vast majority of us in this room have fallen prey to these dangers. We've we've fellowshipped with the world. We've tried to impress the world. We've let the world impress us and all because of our underlying selfishness. We have a couple of options there. One, we could bury our head in the sand, kind of like Hezekiah. Has 15 years, let the problem be somebody else's problem. His son turns out to be one of the worst kings in history. Awful, awful, awful person. Converted at the end. We could kind of ignore it, trust it goes away. Let our children deal with the problem. Yeah, I tend to not like that. Anything where my kids have to deal with the problem instead of me, probably not a good solution. Two, just give ourselves over to the world, kind of go at it full throttle. And that's probably a bad option. Instead, actually, to use these moments in time to show us that our hearts are prone to wander and to come back to the King of Kings and to ask forgiveness. You see, our entire order of worship is built week after week after week to show you the truth of the gospel that if you see the glory of the character of our God, you will then see that you are a sinner who has fallen short of God's perfect command. And our task is to confess our sin and to find mercy in Christ. There isn't really a plan B for Christians. It's not like that's what you do for the first 10 years you're a Christian, and then the final 10 you do something different. Or after you've been a Christian 40 years, you stop following that pattern. There is no plan B for Christianity. Our task is to be in fellowship with the Lord. And as we do that and hear from his word in this sermon now to see our sin, and as we see our sin to go to the cross and to confess and to find forgiveness in King Jesus. Let's do that even right now. Let's pray. Father, we do confess We've given the world far more of our hearts than we would like to admit. And certainly than we'd like to even understand. 
It makes us sad for the bits that we do see. It'd probably crush us if we saw it all. Uh, This is one of those areas where we know that we need to repent even from our repentance. Even our repentance is rotten. We do not see the depth of our need here and we, we ask that you would show mercy even in the little bits that we do understand. For Christ's sake, amen.